As we begin today, I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, where we're going to start at that very powerful passage in verse number 8. Remember that Paul is writing this letter more than likely as a circular letter intended to go through the province of Asia to the seven churches of Asia, starting at Ephesus, to remind them that it's all about Jesus and that everybody is saved by Jesus. This is really important to the Apostle Paul, who is still being frustrated from time to time by the dividing up within the church between Jews and Gentiles. And he wants to put that division to rest. And so he's been talking about the fact that all of us were dead in our sins and transgressions. We were, all of us, separated from God because of our free will choices to sin until Jesus came on the scene, died, and rose again and provided a way that we all might be saved. And so he says this, Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we are saved not by actions we take in order to make God owe us, and that includes doing the works of the law, which some of the Jewish people thought they could do. He says, you've actually been saved by God's gracious mercy. The fact that he looked at us when we were caught up in sin, when we were enemies of his, and still considered us worth saving. And so he gave us unmerited favor through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And those of us who embrace that by our faith, by making that free will choice, I will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I will have him as my Savior. I will have him as my Lord. That salvation process was a gift from God to us. The faith wasn't the gift. That came from within a side of us. That was our free will response to the story, to the action. But it was the actions of God that were the gift. Jesus was the gift. And that is because he doesn't want anyone trying to brag that they saved themselves. That somehow God owed them through what they did. And then I love verse number 10. For we are his workmanship, his poem, uh, his, his generated structure of design. And we were created in Christ Jesus, that is, in his salvation, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So God always had a plan in mind for us, and that plan was for us to come back into right relationship with him, to be holy as he is holy, 
and to live as Christ lives. Remember the the memory verse that I keep telling you to work on from back in the book of Galatians, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in this body, I live for the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, that's all about walking in the good works that God prepared ahead of time for us to live by. Or you could go with a little bit later in the book of Galatians, and that is the fruit of the Spirit, the type of lifestyle that God expects us to live by the Holy Spirit indwelling us after salvation. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the type of good life, good works that we're supposed to be walking in. Or maybe you could go back to uh, Jesus' own words about we need to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, love our neighbor as ourself, do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Or the really big one, Jesus said, don't hate your enemy, love your enemy. Don't curse your enemy, pray and bless your enemy. And don't retaliate with bad things against your enemy. Instead, do good things for them in the hopes of converting them. So that's the type of good works. That's the type of lifestyle that Paul is talking about here that we were prepared to live by. And then he writes this, verse 11. Therefore, remember when you see a therefore, why is it there? Okay. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. So this is where I was going when I said that Paul is still concerned about this dividing up between Jews and Gentiles, even inside the church. He wants that nonsense to stop. And of course, that's actually what God wants. He wants this dividing between Jews and Gentiles to cease. So you guys, because he's writing as a Jewish person, you used to be Gentiles in the flesh. You were called uncircumcision by all of those who called themselves the circumcision, which, of course, is only just something done in the body. Verse number 12. Remember that you were, back at that time, separate from Christ. So this is in the pre-Jesus story of the world. Uh, if you were a Gentile unless you had proselytized to Judaism, you more than likely were following a lifestyle that was devoted to other gods and goddesses, idols, if you will, or you were an absolute atheist doing whatever you felt like doing. Think about uh, Paul's letter to the Romans at the very beginning, chapter number one, uh, that you've got these people who are 
even though they can see the creation of God and that screaming out that there is a God and he is a good being, they deny that and they exchange that glory and thankfulness that's due God for selfish purposes, you know, taking care of their own fleshly wants and uh, desires and uh, following their own gods and goddesses, which, by the way, idolatry, as Paul writes uh, later, is very closely connected to covetousness, that is, wanting other people's stuff or wanting more stuff, greed, basically, Uh, because uh, a lot of idolatry was, okay, little god, little idol, I'm going to do things for you, and you have to give me stuff. And unfortunately, I have to make this critique, there are some people within Christendom today that treat God like that. They think of God as some sort of genie inside of a lamp. And if you rub it the right way with the right words in the right order, God has to deliver. And that's the way a lot of the pagans of the past treated their gods and goddesses. And so Paul says, you know what? At one time, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That is, you weren't Israelis. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Uh, That's a reference to um, things said to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And of course, Paul writes in the book of Galatians that that's a reference to Jesus. So those are the covenants of promise. Uh, He says, continuing in verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. So at one point, many of the people reading this letter They were Gentiles caught up in Gentile things. They didn't have any hope of eternity. They didn't have any hope of being with the Creator God. But, verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, that is, through faith in the one who died and rose again, now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, that is, far away from relationship, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Gentiles are saved by the blood of Christ, just like Jews are saved by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ redeems us, restores us to relationship, saves us. And it doesn't matter what our status was before that, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, none of that matters. What matters is, who are you in Christ? Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Uh, Jesus is the prince of peace, of course. Peace not as in the absence of war, but peace as in the establishment and maintenance of relationship where we are at one with God. We have a proper relationship. 
So Jesus himself is our peace. He's the one that brought us back to God the Father, who made both groups into one. So you're going to hear me emphasize this. There is only one righteous group that's ever existed, and that would be the ones that are in right relationship with God. In the Old Testament era, that was accomplished through faith in the words of God and usually carried out in some form or fashion through a sacrificial system. But it was the faith that made that relationship right, not the ceremony. And then in the New Covenant period, it is blatant faith in Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for sin, the, in, the epitome of all of sacrifices of old. He is the climax. Uh, he is the fulfillment of all those sacrificial uh, actions of the pa- people in the past. And so it doesn't matter if you're talking to Old Testament or New Testament. It is the faithful who were saved. There's only one group. Uh, There's not like Israel and the church. Faithful Israel of the past is the same focal point for God as the faithful church of the present. Because faithful Israel of the past was made up of those that believed and trusted God and acted on that. Whereas the people in faithful church of today are those who believe and act upon the word of God. There are those that claim to be part of the church today that are not because they don't have that sort of faith. They don't have those sorts of actions. And there are people of the past that were physically, um, uh, Uh, genetically part of Israel, but they were not Israel because they didn't have an act upon that faith. And remember, Paul was actually writing about that uh, in the book of Romans uh, not too long ago. We were looking at that uh, in his passage of concern about fleshly Israel having way too many people that had rejected the Messiah. So here, Paul emphasizes the fact there is only one people of God. He himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, this is very important historically to understand. Uh, In the time of the New Testament, actually it goes back into the Old Testament time as well, uh, the Temple Mount had the shrine building with the Holy of Holies and the holy place where the priest did their work in front of the Holy of Holies. And then around that shrine building was a courtyard where the priests did their work, where the Levites did their work on behalf of the worshipers, Israel. That was the court of Israel. And then there was a a barrier uh, that divided Uh, that area 
to the next ring out, which is where the worshipers of Israel could kind of gather, uh, even when they weren't offering the sacrifices, they could gather there close to the shrine building and pray. But then beyond that court of Israel, there was a dividing wall, which is exactly what Paul is talking about here. It was down at the base of some steps that came up to the uh, higher court. Uh, But down at the base of those steps, there was this dividing wall. It had breaks in it where you could come through it. In the time of the first century, the Romans had agreed with the Jewish authorities that they could put up warning signs that said any Gentile found beyond this point will be uh, responsible for their own death. And so Israel was given specific permission to summarily execute any Gentile found beyond that barrier wall. So it was what divided the court of Israel from the court of the Gentiles or the court of the nations. So Gentiles and unclean, unceremonially, uh, uh, that is ceremonially unclean uh, Jewish people, they had to stay in the court of Gentiles on the outside of that barrier wall. So Paul grabs hold of that idea and he says, Jesus is our peace. He made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one. And he demolished, he broke down, he tore down that dividing wall with the warning that Jews and Gentiles have to stay separate from one another in worship. And he did it, verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So the thing that divided Jews and Gentiles there in the first century, before the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was the Mosaic Law. The law which was epitomized by the Ten Commandments, but not limited to them. And so Jesus came, he fulfilled the law in the sense that he never did anything sinful. And once he had proved that he had never done anything wrong, he then laid himself down as the atoning sacrifice for all the sins of anyone and everyone else that would believe in him. And when he did that, he retired the law. Now, this is a hard concept for a lot of people. They don't like that. But all we have to do is go back to the book of Galatians, and we know there that Paul said that the law had a limited time frame that it was for. It was from the time of Moses until the time of the Christ, until the time of Jesus. It was that limited amount of a few hundred years. That's all it was ever for, that time period. What was its purpose? To keep the, the, the um, Israeli ethnic group from imploding, bringing so much of God's judgment on itself that they could not fulfill their role of bringing Messiah into the world and also for generating uh, the uh, inspired word of God, I believe. 
Uh, it was, as Paul uses the illustration, like a pedagogos, a child-leading servant or a child-leading slave whose job was to take the minor children of the master from the house to the, to the uh, that is, from the householder uh, to the master or the teacher at the school. And when the pedagogas had control of the child of the house, they could even beat them, that is, discipline them, spank them, to make them behave themselves until they got into the hands of the teacher. And so the Old Testament law was to get Israel from Mount Sinai to Mount Gilgatha, from the time of Moses to the time of Yehoshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Once it had accomplished that, it was no longer needed. And so that is what Paul is saying here. Jesus tore down the barrier. He tore down this dividing thing between Jews and Gentiles, which was the Mosaic Law. And then that made peace between the two groups. Uh, verse, 15, uh, verse 16, And that he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, that by it having made, put to death the enmity. So at the cross, and we'll see this in the book of Colossians, which is uh, a parallel to the book of Ephesians, uh, that it was at the cross that Jesus retired the Mosaic Law. Verse 17. And then we have a little quote here that Paul throws in from Isaiah 57. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And the reason Paul drags that in from the book of Isaiah is because he was talking just a moment ago about how Gentiles used to be far away from God, but now they've been brought near by Jesus. And the truth is that even Jewish people of their own free will, in spite of the fact that they had God's written law, many of them who were near still sinned and separated themselves from him, came into judgment, condemnation because of their sin. And he brought peace for both groups in his body, offered as the atoning sacrifice for sin on the tree. Uh, verse 18, for through him, we both, that is Jewish believers in Jesus and Gentile believers in Jesus, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So there isn't like uh, one um, mechanism by which Jewish believers in Jesus relate to God and another mechanism by which we Gentile believers in Jesus relate to God. We all relate to God in the exact same way. And that way is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. 
And so this is an emphasis upon unity, which is actually where he will uh, eventually go in chapter number four. Verse number 19. Great news here. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Uh, That's a reference to people living in a country that they don't really belong in. They are visitors there. Uh, They might have a legal status. Doesn't matter. They still aren't citizens of that nation. He says, that's not the way you are anymore. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So Jews and Gentiles, doesn't matter where you started, in Christ Jesus, we are all citizens of eternity. We are all citizens of God's household, God's heavenly kingdom. Uh, This is something Paul actually kind of already mentioned, that we Gentiles were grafted into the tree of faithful Israel. So we are, I want to say honorary Israelis, but I only mean that from a genetic standpoint, because the fact of the matter is, spiritually, we are all Israelis if we believe in the one who is the seed of salvation. Uh, He says then, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So there's the foundational leaders of the New Testament church, apostles and prophets. All the apostles were Jewish, ethnically. Uh, Many of the prophets were Jewish, ethnically. Uh, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and don't think of that as a Western cornerstone down at the bottom of, of the uh, building. Think of it instead as a a Middle Eastern cornerstone, which is up at the top. It's holding everything together. It's the last stone to be put in place. Verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And you may remember um, Old Testament prophecy, which Jesus uh, grabbed a hold of and which the church also applied to him. He is the stone which the builders rejected. And the, the, the stumbling stone, the rejected stone, has become the head of the corner. And this has been at God's work. And so Jesus is the one who's holding the temple of the church together. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So all of us belong to the church. All of us belong to the faithful body of Christ if we have put our faith in Jesus as Savior and if we have been born again and are walking by the Spirit. That makes us all part of the body of Christ. See you next time we get into God's Word.